You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery, hoof care and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Hoof Care Essentials Foundation and their partners, Khan Forge. Steve Krause, my next guest, came from a non-horse family, but he had quite an amazing journey through his life, uh, both his horse riding journey and his shoeing journey. His experience uh, stretches all the way back to the 1960s, and he's had a long relationship with Cornell University, uh, and we look at that in quite a lot of depth. He talks about how his uh, career as a veterinary surgeon went, uh, and how quick, or shall I say what a short time it lasted, and that may amuse you what Cornell University's advice was to him. So just sit back and enjoy the podcast. I'm at the International Hoof Care Summit in Cincinnati and I've managed to catch up with Steve Kraus. It's taken two years. We had a sort of appointment before and it fell through. Steve Krauss is a CGAF and he's had that since 1983 and he's head farrier of services at Cornell University amongst many other things and we're going to explore a lot of his life and his work. Thank you for agreeing to do this podcast, Steve. Certainly, glad to be here. Okay. So the, the first and obvious question is how did you get into farriery? Well, it's, it's kind of a long, long story. I'll condense as much as I can. I uh, uh, had an interest in, in horses based on watching, you know, the early cowboy movies uh, that were on television. And, you know, every, a lot of kids want to grow up wanting to be a cowboy. I think there's some allure to that. And um, lucky enough, even though I grew up in, in South Bronx, New York City, um, where there aren't any horses except what the uh, policemen ride at parades, um, my uh, family had a, a summer home out on Long Island, way out, and uh, I, there was a place that offered pony rides, so my father would come out on the weekends when we were there for the summers. Um, I said, I want to go pony rides, you know, I wanted to be on one, and you know, they'd lead you around, and I got bored with that pretty quick, and the next thing I'm telling the guy that's leading me around when I was five years old, that I think I could do this on my own, and... So that was every week when my father came out because we spent the summers out there. And my father did ride when he was younger and he saw I had good balance and that was when you could rent a horse for go out by yourself without a riding helmet on and go out. And so my father started taking me out on trail rides and that was something we did every weekend almost through the summers. And as time went on, as I got older, my mother went back to work and we couldn't spend the summers out on Long Island. And all my friends at 10 years old, we were, they were all looking for summer camps to get kids out of the cities and the Bronx is not a great place to be on your own. And uh, we just happened to find a camp that offered horsemanship. And that was the change of my life right there. And it was a really cool place. It was in Northern Pennsylvania. And it was a real camping experience, and the focus was the horses, but they had other stuff there. But the really, really cool thing for me at 10 years old 
was that as you get older and learn your horsemanship skills and qualify for a special group of campers where you got your own horse for the summer. And that was my first goal in life, to be in that group and hone my horsemanship skills on the way every summer. And I lived 10 months of the year to get there. And um, by the time I was old enough to be in that group, it was very competitive. But I got into it and I got my first horse for the summer and you got taught a lot of things. But one of the things that was there, we had 30 horses and they needed shoes. And they had a guy shoeing these horses and I was fascinated right from the word go. And I couldn't keep away from it when they were shoeing and it was very basic shoeing. And uh, the owner had a son who was about three years older than me, who was taking more of the, you know, leadership roles eventually. And he was interested in horseshoeing, so his father hired a guy to teach his son how to shoe, and I inserted myself into that process. I couldn't keep away from it. And so each summer I would come back and I gained more of my skills to the point where I couldn't be a camper anymore, and the owner uh, asked me to come back as a, what they called a counselor in training on the riding staff and so again I as time went on we had a few guys helping us that local farriers that came in there wasn't that many they were all older and we started trying to shoe these 30 horses by ourselves we had trouble but we got some help now and then and but we learned the hard way we had some of these horses that really weren't too pleasant to work on so, uh, so sorry to interrupt yes. Steve. How old were you at this point? Uh, at 14 okay. is when I got my first horse there. At 15, I was getting under horses. I was observing horseshoeing at 14. And at 15, I was clinching up, pulling shoes. And, it, and I actually nailed my first set of shoes on when I was 15 during that summer. And it was like uh, a very great experience. So every summer I would go back there and we were more on our own as we got older. And this... Uh, uh, other fellow who was three years older than me, his name is Chris, and his father owned the place, um, he was getting honed to take over the whole riding program, and I was his right-hand man by then. So all through junior high school and college, I went back there and I was employed on the riding staff, and we were shoeing horses in a very rough way, on difficult horses at times. We didn't have good equipment. This was in 1960s. Uh, late mid mid to late 60s where there wasn't much around diamond horseshoes capewell nails we had an old anvil we had terrible tools all used stuff um, we had a really hard time but as time went on this gathered my interest in horses and wanting a career in horses which i uh, went to college first a two-year college on long island where i was familiar which was an agricultural and technical college at farmingdale and transferred to Cornell University in 1968. And by then I was shoeing horses during the summer. I was a lot on my own and I had, you know, base, good basic skills. And I knew there was more, but I was at a roadblock at that point. And I'm in the ag school at Cornell University and the vet school's right next to it. And I heard there was a farrier shop there. And I found my way up to the farrier shop and I met Harold Mowers, who was the uh, resident farrier, who's also in the Hall of Fame and um, developed a friendship with Harold. And I started a little part-time shoeing business when I was a junior in college at Cornell in 1968. 
And there I was shoeing horses part-time, weekends, after classes, but I spent a lot of time gravitating up to that farrier shop, watching what Harold was doing, picking his brain. He accepted me as a friend and started answering my questions. And of course his students would turn over, but I kept coming in. And um, he was known as a very good standard bread shoer and he had all these local guys that he had worked for that were at the local fairgrounds and they wanted somebody that could shoe a standard bread horse. And Harold would send me out to those horses and tell me what to do for him. He knew the horses, he knew what to do. I set up a little forge at home. I started making shoes because I watched Harold make them. And that's how my business grew. I graduated Cornell. I did apply to veterinary college. And when I went in, I had an uh, uh, a, uh, interview with the Dean of Admissions and he looked at my resume and he was pretty impressed that I was shoeing horses to put myself through college. And I was thought, it, you know, I had some good, um, stuff to put on my resume about that and he looked at me and said so you want to be a veterinarian so you can fix lame horses for rich people and I said that's yes sir that's what I want to do and he said well you're already doing that and I think you're pretty good at it so you don't need a DVM to do what you're doing and we need good horseshoers and that's what you should stay doing so my veterinary uh, career was over at that point and I decided I would become a full-time farrier in um, about 1970. Do you have any regrets? Not at all. Oh. Not at all. That's all I never looked back. And it's interesting to me at this point, of course, a lot has happened. 50 years have gone by. But here I am teaching veterinarians yeah. in my position. And um, I'm you know, somewhat highly regarded by the people in the veterinary college. And so it's funny how that it's, things kind of turned around on that and um, but I'm very happy with the way it worked out and the career has been just an amazing thing to do. And uh, that was a great start and um, probably a start that people wouldn't have the opportunity to now or you know it's, it's gone away. I, I speak to a lot of guys that of our sort of age Steve and um, you know they started at 14 or 15 and I, I don't think that's really going to happen in the future. It may or may not. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, it can happen any way, any... I have a few students that I'm teaching now that their interest started in, in their mid-teens yeah. and they finally found a way to do it. And a lot of them are not mature enough, you know, they got to get through... High, you know, I, I wouldn't want to quit high school to start shoeing horses type of thing, you know, and it's not... that would not be a good no. plan. You have to get mature to some degree. I was very lucky. I had... Uh, um, sometimes things are laid out for you know and it's a good path and you can either go down it or or fight it for me it would it, it was like I had to do this it's like you know you might want dinner but you have to eat and it depends where you go for dinner but you still have to eat I had to shoe horses that's the way I was and luckily that coming up to Cornell University and working with Harold and kind of as someone who just came in the shop and picked his brain and became you know almost like a family member but that led me to Doug Butler because Doug Butler was at Cornell and he was a huge influence uh, on me because he was doing his PhD program but he kept his hand in, in shoeing horses and we became friends and he would come out shoeing with me occasionally and but and but and I would help him with some of his labs and things like that that he was doing. So you know I got experience first with Harold Mowers and then Doug Butler, 
and then when Buster Conklin succeeded Harold Mowers, same thing. Buster and I became really great friends, and Buster was a huge, good role model and influence for me. And so I was able to get around these farriers that I never would have been able to do if I just said, I want to go shoe horses. Yeah. And then, of course, the whole um, introduction to the Mustad um, hoof care, um, the Mustad horse nails, came through Doug Butler, actually. And, and, and I had been, you know, established pretty well and um, going to shoeing competitions by then. I went to my first competition in 1971. I met Bruce Daniels there, another lifelong friend, huge influence on my life. And um, uh, be, going to competitions and starting to go to some of these um, um, outside clinics before the AFA was going, um, Doug Butler knew that. And when um, the people from Sweden, from Mustad, approached him wanting to help with their nails, Doug Butler recommended me for that. And we had a meeting at Cornell, and I was hired in 1976 to be the first American farrier consultant because of Doug Butler. Well, I was told only today that Doug, he only shoes one horse now, but he shoes his own because he's 80. But right. But somebody who has a... You know, a PhD and was and has written some such great stuff. He still obviously has a passion. Yes, for shoeing. And that but a was a great obvious. mentor of mine. Obviously, I didn't spend one tenth of the time that you did with him. But you know, wonderful man. No, I, I he was a great role model for me, and I think that's how I started developing. You know, the idea that okay, I can do more than shoe horses. Um, you know, I I started doing. You know, I recommended. Uh, putting on clinics for Mustad, and we, that was the first clinics that you know the manufacturers were putting out, and I think that seed was planted by uh, Doug Butler. Okay, now we we're going to come back to Cornell, I think, but what I wanted to explore was polo. Okay, because my other passion, you, uh, <laughs> exactly, and as you probably remember, uh, when I came up and saw you at Cornell. Uh, you refereed a match, yes. indoor match. Yes. I've never seen an indoor match uh, before, a lot tighter. And, and so just tell me, how did you get into polo? It, it's funny, you know, as a rider and horseman, I always I, I wanted to be a well-rounded horseman. At the camp, we did a lot of different types of horsemanship, which we did camping on horses and trail riding, and that was fun. Uh, but we also did competition stuff, both Western and English. Um, and started basic jumping. It was they tried to do a lot of different things, and we we played um, uh, 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 like an arena version of, of, of broomstick type polo, um, just for fun. We didn't know what we were doing, but we were having a good time running around. We didn't know the rules, and we were whacking the ball and so on. And and one of the ideas when I went came to Cornell as an undergrad, I said, oh, I want to play polo at Cornell, and so. Um, uh, I, I transferred into the junior, and I stopped in, and I said, what do I got to do to play polo here? And they, they talked about it, and they said, well, you're a junior, and, and your eligibility will be over in two years, and we only take freshmen in because it takes us two years to really turn you into a Cornell polo player, and we need those spots for future varsity members. So um, there's nothing for you here at uh, Cornell Polo. We got to talking more, and at the time, I had some of my own horses that I had acquired, and he said, well, you have some of your own horses, and um, uh, we have an outdoor club, and maybe you could think about playing polo with us, you know, outdoors if you're going to be around here. So uh, I didn't do that the first year, but it didn't take very long before I was 
coming over there and seeing what I could do to get into the outdoor polo. And I worked with my horses, got them going, and then uh, started playing outdoor polo with what we call the Ithaca Polo Club. And um, um, made some good friends. Being around polo, I, I watched all the varsity games and used to hang out with a lot of the people there. And then uh, one of my friends who was, um, uh, was on the Cornell Polo team, who became a lifelong friend, started, you know, playing beyond Cornell as he graduated and with the outdoor club that we had and, you know, kind of, he started, you know, we started playing together. And incidentally, this is um, uh, next month in uh, February, I'm going down to Florida because he is being inducted into the Polo Hall of Fame and I play polo with him as long as I've been playing polo. So I'm going to be there at his Hall of Fame induction down at Lake Worth next month. But uh, my friend Danny really encouraged me to keep going with the outdoor polo as I graduated Cornell and um, just built up that. And then he took over as head coach at Cornell. So he said, you know enough now about riding and basic polo. You should start co helping coach the first year team. So as I did that, I learned how to umpire and just started developing my own string of I polo. I called you a referee, didn't I? Well, You're umpire. umpire actually, the referee, yeah, two mounted umpires. And the referee sits on the side if the two mounted umpires disagree. Okay. The, the referee is the tiebreaker. Okay. And, um, but anyway, so I started playing, coaching at Cornell and umpiring and then continuing to play outdoor polo. And I'm actually now, we combine with another club to the, um, what we call the Central New York Polo Club. And I'm the, actually the president of it. We're a corporation. Well, I was going to ask you that because on my notes I saw in my little bit of research... Yes you as president-elect, so you are now president. I'm the president of the uh, Central yeah. New York Polo Club, and we are a corporation to, you know, limited liability stuff. So I am the president of a corporation, which a lot of people would never imagine. And, um, um, but, um, so, again, I'm the oldest playing member now, too, um, because we've got a lot of younger people that we've started over the years, and my friend Danny, who's getting inducted and all that, he's younger than me, but... He injury-wise, he had to stop playing, and all my original compatriots that I played a lot of competitive polo with have all aged out. So I'm the last of the Mohegans there. Well, keep going as and long as you can. I'm trying and to. I've got another note here that you're on the Polo Wall of Honor in 2009. So tell me what that means. Um, the Cornell <clears throat> Polo Wall of Honor is um, something that they award that they give to people who have contributed, you know, a lot to Cornell Polo. And so, you know, I've been coaching there since 1975. And um, so uh, at some point they decided maybe I should be put up on that wall. <laughs> and, and we've also been shoeing the, polo, the Cornell Polo horses all that time too. Yeah, well, when I was up there with you, you were doing right. some of that there and with, with uh, some of your students. Right. So, I, yeah, I brought the polo horses into the yeah. program when I went into the uh, yeah. farrier shop at Cornell. Well, let's explore polo a little bit. So, so what's the main thing you're trying to achieve with a, when you're shoeing a polo horse? Um, you know, <clears throat> polo pony, I should say. Well, I, 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 I like to say I ride polo horses. I, I, I'm not crazy about the, I'm, you know, I, I can't picture myself riding ponies back when, that's what I did when I was five years old. You know, when I think of polo horses myself, it just, the two P's just kind of blend in, I think, and it's just something that's caught on. But 
first of all, for the most part, the nice thing about shoeing polo horses, other than that most of them are pretty even-tempered and not much bothers them, if you're going to pick a horse to play polo, he's got to be put together pretty well. And so, yes, there's always going to be outliers, but um, uh, most of them, it's pretty straightforward shoeing. If the horse needs anything really, really special, probably shouldn't be playing polo. So that makes it simple, and that's why they're great teaching horses. On the other hand, I see a lot of not-so-good uh, shoeing done to polo horses because they're so athletic they can compensate for imbalances and um, shoes too short and all the, the, the problems that I see. But, you know, you know, just a good balanced foot, um, balance is a term we throw around, but square with the landing is a better way to think about it and we typically keep pretty short toes on them, and people have a hard time with that. How much is too short, how much is too long, dealing with the conformation. Um, I teach a lot of measuring of toe lengths, um, and there is a range. The polo horses are pretty consistent in the size. There's not too many different size shoes you might use in shoeing most uh, polo horses. And so if you have baselines to work with, what I tell my students, you know, most horses take about a size one lighter type rim shoe, and that would probably have a, a, a three and a half inch toe, plus or minus. So right there, you can kind of start, at least have a guideline to work with, um, because if you look at the standard distribution curve of that, that's right in the middle of, you know, mm -hmm. normal distribution. And so, you know, then you have to at least judge it one way or the other. And so it, it's a pretty straightforward tight-fitting front shoes, tight-fitting hind shoes, and but the problem there is it's easy to underfit and shoe short also. So it's, I think in some ways it's easier, in some ways it's harder, because the fit is more precise. And I think the best way to translate it to maybe someone like you, who shot hunters and racehorses, it's kind of a hunter fit in front. Yeah, streamlined <clears throat> heels yeah. that that fit where they belong and not underfit, and that's the mistake. Yeah. They fit under too much, yeah. and the, and you were t uh, talking about purchase and traction in your talk today, and they need that, and they need grip behind. Um, I would not want to be playing polo without some type of heel cocks behind. Uh, but but would that be one heel cock on the outside? No, uh, I. I've shot high goal horses for friends of mine in Florida, and I was introduced to that. On softer fields, you can probably get away with that, but on harder fields, we usually use the dull factory heel cocks, the ones that St. Croix makes and Diamond used to make that we started with, and it's just a double heel cock. But what we used to do for the, the uh, high-level pros in Florida that wanted more traction on those softer fields, we would reforge the outside heel up like what you showed with a pretty yeah. stout heel cock. And, but we, some of them wanted it double on the inside depending upon the confirmation because they are just going so hard and fast. And some of it we put a smaller version on the inside, but never completely without on the inside and it may be something that I've seen in Argentina and I've seen in Europe, but in, in uh, Wellington, I didn't see that happening. And the downside of putting these big heel cocks, especially only one on the outside, as soon as that horse is walking on anything hard, yeah. you are cocking him the wrong way. The other downside is it can hurt another horse with it if they're 
aggressive if they're turned out. Fortunately, most polo horses, they're over that. They're not kicking each other. But that's a big thing to leave on a yeah. horse. And in 2016, the United States Polo Association, because of problems with this, and because the rules were being bent anyway, um, they came up with the plan and the rules. They changed the rules that they allow um, uh, removable screw cocks to be put in, and and that would be a groom's job, especially for you know high goal polo. And so, if they're smart about it, they can put in what they need for the, just like an event horse, put in what they need for the conditions and take it out when they're done. So it's a very smart thing to do. But for amateurs like myself who are not, you know, playing in the type of situation. Um, and I've done the experiments with my own personal horses over the years and my friends. We always put um, just the dull heel cocks on behind um, and we can tell, I've done the experiments, if you go without them, you don't have the stopping and traction. And uh, if you go barefoot, like some people may want to start the season, um, you have less traction purchase and all that. And it does change your competitiveness. So it's all about having the right grip to be competitive and safe at the same time. Yeah. And we've seen people come from elsewhere um, that are either trying to play with flat shoes and see, and of course, field conditions may be okay where they are. And maybe it's a different field condition here, moisture, hardness of the ground. <laughs> and now you watch them slipping when turning or can't stop as well. So they're not as competitive and they may even go down easily. So, you know, understanding the traction that the horses need, I think is pretty important and, and not overdoing it also. And it could, you can hurt a horse if you overdo it. Yeah. Well, that's a great explanation of it, Steve. And I haven't shod polo ponies or I think two or three, probably at the lowest level of polo the world's ever seen. So, but I always find it a fascinating sport, this, speed and uh, it's a lot of fun and acceleration and yeah it's like soccer on horses right? that that's about what it's like and i enjoy the teamwork of it and and playing with my friends and i also enjoy playing you know with the younger students that are learning i'll tell you a quick funny story last summer we had to play in the arena some of the time because it was raining so much and so we have a bunch of high school kids that are we started going that are getting aggressive and they you know these are our future so we really want to encourage these kids and um you know we're just playing fun chuckers in indoors and you know i team up with a bunch of them and against some of them and we're in there and you know i'm, I'm just sitting back letting them do what they're ever going to do and then i'm going to just go in when i can and they threw the ball in and i scored a goal in about 30 seconds you know because i'm reading the play where they're scrambling too much not thinking and then they threw the ball in again and i scored another goal and then in two minutes i scored four goals and that coach, who's a good friend of mine, you know, starts heckling them. And he starts yelling at these 18-year-olds, you know, he's 72? And uh, I was laughing so hard, you know. He was just, you know, make, you know trying to embarrass them. But, but I'm thinking the game, we're yeah. there. And so that comes with time. It certainly does. Okay, uh, let's get off polo and let's get back to Cornell. Part of Cornell, part of your duties is to be the farrier at the yes. Equine Veterinary Hospital there. So can you give me a typical case that you might have there? Well, we get everything, really, and that's, a, you know, a lot of, we don't get too many normal things. We get a lot of times either train wrecks and cases, hoof injuries, 
or um, uh, things that are referred to us because either the local farrier um, can't, doesn't want to, isn't prepared, or needs help or whatever. Uh, so we get a lot of referring vets sending lame or injured or laminitis horses in. And because, you know, we're known, we have, not, not just because of me, but the people we have there, we have all the tools in place that we can deal with stuff that maybe the outside vet can't or the outside farrier can't. So we get everything, and it, it, it changes during the course of the year, too. Um, you know, we're coming into foaling season here pretty quick, so anything that's got some of the stuff you showed today with angular limb deformities and, you know, um, can, uh, club feet and all that kind of stuff is going to start rolling in. And because we've got pretty good surgeons, you know, there's could be surgical options that we support with the shoeing. And of course, as we get into what I call laminitis season, same thing, we get the acute metabolic laminitis cases coming in and people that, you know, the horse is in real trouble and they want, they want you know, some type of help. And then last summer, it was very wet, so feet were really falling apart and we had more abscesses out of control uh, into the coffin bone, hoof injuries, hoof walls torn off horses, I guess they were so soft in places and maybe grew out too quick and caught on something and just we've had several with pieces of hoof right off the sides of them, usually hind feet, but lots of abscesses that were undetected and got into the coffin bone and needed uh, coffin bone debridements and hospital plates. So that's the kind of stuff and occasionally just injuries that involve maybe it's a bad injury on one leg and they want something on the opposite leg and Obviously, you can't put that on while the horse is standing up, so we might go in on the operating tables while they're working. So the horse is anesthetized, and we're shooing the horse on a table. And so just a variety. That's uh, always fun, but it's, I don't think people realize that this horse presented to you sideways. Correct. It's very difficult to hold it firm. I think we forget how firmly we hold it. Well, it, either... Because we're using the horse's that's own right. weight. And, they put it on the table sideways. Yeah difficult task and it was a way. adjustment for me you know to be able to get that correct and uh, and so I do a lot of horses sideways and even though it you have to do it sometimes it's not easier but I've learned how to adjust and it's just same old thing it's just practice of it um, we get a lot of like a horse has a fracture that they repaired with plates and screws they want some type of frog support on the opposite side so again maybe a patent bar shoe on, on, a, on the affected side or something, or maybe there's a cast on that side, even a foot cast. And not only need frog support on the, on the opposite side, but we need something built up to balance what the bottom of the cast is. So it's a very, a very challenging work. It was a bit of an adjustment for me, although I did a lot of laminitis work and foal work before I came there and uh, work with a lot of the outside vets, um, but it was really jumping in to a deeper end of the pond when I went in there, and so I, I learned a lot being there. Yeah, well, I, I loved it, the hospital work I did for 25 years, but it is quite intensive because it's high concentration yeah. on every single case. And no preparation. No. And, and you, you do see things that are... Um, uh, what can I say, are sometimes you've never seen them before. You've seen something like it, but you've never seen yeah. that before. And um, I had, I was lucky 
that some of the surgeons there I had really great relationships with, and not only as colleagues, but as mentors or trying to, you know, get this stuff right. And one of the things I learned from Dr. Norman Ducharme, who's, you know, world famous, he can operate on every end of the horse. He works on throat surgeries and he works on foals, angular limb problems. He's not a, he's not a, um, a colic person, but he works on either end of the horse very equally well and does a lot of orthopedic work and on some of the tougher stuff. Um, I'm trying to figure out what to do. And he told me one day when I was not sure how things were going to go, uh, what I wanted to do, he said, just because something has not been done before, that doesn't mean it's not possible. And that changed my whole outlook on how I approach these cases. Yeah. Well, that, that's great. And of course, one of your other duties there is the Farrier program, yes. which is, uh, you know, it's very famous. So, so tell me about the Farrier program at Cornell. You know, that's a whole other ball of wax, um, having to teach the students. And it's a unique program for sure. It's got, you know, we're over 100 years old, oldest in the country that I know of. And um, it's got quite a tradition. And the, the, the giants that I stand on the shoulders of there, I never would imagine I would be there, you know, being familiar with who was there before me, including Harold and Buster and Mike Wildenstein. You know, all of a huge, huge, tremendous respect for, and Gene Layton before Harold and and Henry Asmus, who was the the founder of the course, um, and you know, just just incredible people in my mind to you know be following, and um, and you know, dealing with the students is a whole different deal than dealing with the horses. It's a whole <laughs> other um, angle that you have to do and uh, but what has been interesting to me in dealing with the students is what I try to tell them explain to them if you if this works for you and you you know put in the the hard work you're gonna have marketable skills and that's gonna be important you know for your life and if you can get what I got out of it by developing these marketable skills you will have everything you want in life. And, and so that's the, the approach. This is not just helping horses, this is helping yourself have a good life. And we've had a, quite a cross-section of students over the years, and I came to realize after a while that I was changing their lives, hopefully most of them for the better, and that was the feedback that I would get back from them. And um, to hear from them a year out or five years out and checking in and telling me how much um, they, they love what they do and how successful they're becoming and how much um, they appreciate what they learned at Cornell. Um, uh, it really makes me feel good when I, I hear about their successes and show me cases and they're working on in some cases high level horses now. And or they or they worked on you know a hoof injury and successfully, and all those great things that you know they they're following what I did and 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 making some of their own stuff up too and and to see that level of uh, engagement that they have and success, it it goes beyond just helping horses for me and it's been it's, it's something I didn't think about when I took the yeah. position. Well, I, I know I know how many see you as a great mentor, which. I know you are, and there is no finer feeling, that's for sure. Now, we have a little bit of fun here in that 
I'm going to ask you three quick-fire questions, <laughs> and I need quick-fire answers, okay? Uh, studs or corkins? For what kind of horses? We no, that's about? no. Oh, oh the name. The, uh, studs, I, I think of studs. Okay, studs. Loop knife or straight blade? I prefer a loop knife. Racing or polo? Polo, of I course. Knew, of course, I knew that. <laughs> I could have predicted that answer. I think anybody could have. Okay, Steve. Now, another part of your duties at Cornell is, is, is teaching vets. How does that um, occur? Is that lecturing or is that...? Yeah, we have um, uh, what we call equine specialty rotation. Yeah. And I am part of that. Um, and they have a whole bunch of, you know, various equine-oriented lectures, labs, and so on. And so I have duty to do several lectures for that course and several labs. And they're very general stuff. I try and get in as much as I can. There's some good hands-on stuff. Um, you know, the purpose is to understand the tools, how to use them, how to sharpen a knife, how to pull a shoe properly, um, how to locate abscesses and work on them without chopping the foot up, and much other stuff as we can get in in, in the hands-on labs that, you know, supplements with the lectures. But I established a new course up there that has become very popular for the um, clinical rotations, and that is called farrier, um, farrier skills for veterinarians, and it's a, right in the course book now, Vet Med 6627, and um, so they can go down for their rotations and select it um, and take a two-week complete all-day, every-day uh, rotation with us, just like if they were on uh, radiology, anesthesiology, or whatever. And uh, a lot of the students that come through tell me that this is the most, the, the best rotation they're on. Some of them hate being on ambulatory or hate being on anesthesiology, but they love coming to the farrier shop. And we get them under horses as much as possible, working with the students. We're talking about cases, you know, we get cases and we got to look at radiographs, so we go over a lot of that with them so that the radiographs make more sense to them um, you know, when it comes to foot and leg problems on how it relates to what we're doing shoeing. So they really get, and even I make them all forge their own hoof picks. So they leave with a hoof pick. And then as they get more comfortable with the fire, uh, some of them make shoes. And it's amazing how good a shoe they make the first time they try it. Um, because they have an, some of them have more artistic um, ability and, and everything. And, and then they, but it really what they say, but the best thing they got out of the course is, yeah, they, now they're confident with a knife and all that. But they really appreciate what farriers do. Well, let's hope they carry that with them all their careers. Yes. Because uh, I think um, that's something that continually causes angst, doesn't right, it? With, right, right. You know, a farrier, a 40-year-old farrier has a 28-year-old veterinarian get out of their car and start pointing at the foot. Right. And saying, this is what I want you to do. <laughs> right. Well, we, we talk a little bit about that. Yeah. And, but, you know, I, I, I have reasons for everything I teach. And I want to make sure that they understand why we do things a certain way and why we may not be able to do what the textbook says. Good. Well, as I say, it's a great thing, though, that there is such, um, should we say, a part of the program. I know, I know in the UK, I mean... Veterinary schools, they get two hours or three hours on on, right. on the hoof and on farriery, and then they qualify and they become an right, a specialist right. equine 
veterinary surgeon, and um, well, we know. I, what, I think we, we know do. What comes next. I think we're known to have more hands-on stuff for our equine special rotation, not in not only in foot lameness, but in other aspects too. From what I've been told with our uh, other people that I do this with. Right, I'm going to ask you the deep philosophical question. <laughs> what I'd like you uh, to tell us is, what's the most important thing that you've learned in life? Oh boy, um, I think to have principles and stick to them, but be flexible at the same time, be open to new things, but still have good core principles, whether it be shoeing horses, relationships with other people, have integrity okay so do you have any now you said very early on about goals in life about one of your goals your first goal you said and i wonder if you have any goals now still in your life <laughs> well realistic ones versus a reality <laughs> <laughs> you take your choice you know i've been chewing now nearly 60 years um and uh in, you know from the time i started at 14 and I guess my goal is to find out how I can um, finish whatever I'm going to finish in my career properly. Because I know I can't do this forever, and I want to be able to be involved, you know, as long as I still have uh, the sensibilities to do it. And I know physical things will eventually run out uh, too. You know, never know which is going to go first: your mind or your body, or both at once. Well, you don't usually know when your mind right, is going. Right. But, you know, um, so if I think back to Harold, Harold had health problems, but he retired at 65, and he was a really great guy, and I had a great love for Harold. And um, with his health problems and uh, so on, the last year of his uh, tenure at Cornell, he, he, he wasn't very well, you know. And, and, um, and then when he, he had a little retirement, that they put him up at the, there's a sequine research park, so he moved up there as the caretaker, and they brought in a bunch of standard bred horses that they needed for this drug testing trial that they started way back then, and um, and being that Harold was a standard bred shoer, they said, oh, you can be shoeing these horses while you're up there and all that, and they, you know, puttering around, don't have, you know, do them all at once, and Harold was having me come up to help him because he, his physical ability dropped very quickly. And so I had to work on those horses helping Harold, um, which was an honor for me and great to, you know, again, being able to help him. But to watch somebody who was like Superman fade was a really tough thing for me. And um, I don't want that to happen to me. So I, I want to go out on a high note and, and not somebody say, well, he's starting to slip or um, come on, Steve, it's time for you to step back. Okay, well. You know, so my goal is to figure out where that point is, which I don't know where it is, but I know it's on the horizon. So that's my goal is to, just like I started my career, have a good way to end it. You need an exit plan. I need an exit strategy. End. Yeah, exit strategy. Now, uh, Steve, this is uh, because it was very easy. I thought the first question I asked you, I think you took 10 minutes in answering right. but, and gave me details. So this has been one of the easiest podcast I've oh. done. You, you don't need a lot of prompting to speak. Right. But I want to thank you for joining me in this podcast. You and I have got a dinner to go to, haven't we? Yes. And so we've got to get finished and get ready for that. 
But thank you really very much for taking part in this podcast. Well, I appreciate the, the, the honor of doing it. And I, I've enjoyed my career tremendously. And that's, again, part of this figuring out the exit strategy. You know, nobody want, you want to go on forever, really. And, um, but it's been an honor to be involved with the people like yourself and all the people here and the AFA people that you know, made lifelong friends. And even though we only see each other sometimes once a year, it's a good meeting. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and, we, and we it's kinda, been two years this time. Right, but we kind of love each other, which is really yeah. amazing. Yeah. Even though we may disagree, we love seeing each other or we wouldn't come here. Exactly. So thank you once more, Steve. Thank yeah. you. My pleasure. Well, we looked at depth um, at his career in polo, and that's been long enough in his very distinguished career with his polo club and how he's been recognised in that. We had a lot of technical discussions, so that's really good. And polo's always interested me, even though I haven't uh, shod them, in that no other horse, I think, needs as much grip and purchase. You know, those tight turns, somebody on the back, very accurate riding. So we look at both the riding and really the shoeing of those horses. Steve was a, and, and still is, a great example to us. He's had 60 years in the craft. He's still passionate about it, still loves it, and still very much involved in it. We'd like to thank Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com. And for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.